You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle, and Happy New Year. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners, and Happy New Year to all of you. This is January 9th, 2022, and this is episode 155 of Lighthearted. Today, photographer Mike Leonard will be returning to the podcast. We'll be talking about tips for people to take better lighthouse photos. Michelle, you're an excellent photographer. And, uh, you know, I've been taking photos for like 50 years, give or take a a couple of years. But I always learn something new when I'm talking uh, with Mike. There are always new things to learn. Yes, Jeremy, that's for sure. There are definitely always new things to learn. I got a new camera last summer and I still haven't quite figured everything out with it. But Mike is great. I remember him from a lighthouse cruise that we did and he let me borrow one of his um, larger lenses, you know, to get some pictures of White Island. And he's a wonderful photographer in person. He is. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the great things about what Mike does is uh, he gives tips that can really be applied to whatever you're doing with any kind of camera. You know, it doesn't matter if you have a fancy, expensive uh, SLR camera or using a cell phone or whatever you might be using. These tips, uh, you know, really work nicely. So that's going to be fun to have him back on. Definitely. So uh, to change the subject for the moment, Michelle, has anything interesting happened on this date in Lighthouse history? Yes, something not very pleasant happened on the night of January 9th, 2010. Two men drove down a blocked road to the Cape Mears Lighthouse in Oregon. The men fired a number of rounds at the lighthouse, breaking 15 panes of glass and damaging parts of the historic First Order Fresnel lens. There was about a half million dollars in damage, and the two men were later arrested. They were fined $100,000 and had to spend two weeks in jail each year for three years. I think they got off kind of lightly, if you ask Yeah, me. that sounds a little bit like a easy punishment. Yeah. I visited the Cape Mears Lighthouse in 2015. It made me extremely sad to see that beautiful lens with pieces missing. I have to admit, I uh, almost cried when I saw it. Uh, and because the cost for a full restoration of the lens is so high, it might never be repaired. Also on January 9th, 1941, the singer Joan Baez was born on Staten Island, New York. She once said, and I quote, action is the antidote to despair, end quote. I agree with that. Yeah. So let's introduce our guest for today, photographer Mike Leonard. Sure, Jeremy. Mike Leonard lives in Yarmouth, Maine. His work is frequently seen in books, magazines, and on television, including the Weather Channel. His photos have also been seen on the National Geographic Wild program. He enjoys shooting landscapes and seascapes, including lighthouses, as well as nighttime scenes. Mike offers workshops on digital photography, which you can read about on his website at phototourismbymike.com. He leads a Photoshop user group in Portland, Maine. He's also provided instruction aboard lighthouse photo cruises and other special cruises around New England. This is Mike's third time on the podcast. I've known him for a few years. We've done some cruises and events together. And uh, as we were saying before, he's great at explaining photography in a way that's understandable and helpful to everyone, no matter what your level of experience might be, and regardless of what kind of camera you're using. 
In this conversation, we talked about five factors that make great photos, including some details about photographing lighthouses. So let's listen to my conversation with Mike Leonard now. I'm speaking this morning with my good friend, Mike Leonard, a photographer, a very accomplished photographer who lives in Maine most of the time, but is actually speaking to me from Chicago this morning. Hey, Mike, how are things in Chicago? Well, it's a cold and windy, which is typical for Chicago, but yeah. at least there isn't any of the white stuff on the ground. Well, that's good. We just have a little bit here in New Hampshire. <laughs> and I th- it's going to be a marginal white Christmas, at least here on the New Hampshire seacoast. I think oh, okay. very white farther north. But anyway, I want to mention uh, before we uh, start our discussion here that you can check out Mike's website at phototourismbymike.com. And we'll talk a little bit more about that before we're done. And also maybe uh, mention your Facebook page. But again, phototourismbymike.com. So, Mike, we uh, discussed a little bit about what we're going to talk about today. And you mentioned that it might be a good idea for us to talk about the five factors that make great pictures. That seems like a good idea to me. So where do we start with that? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's always great to be on your podcast. What I'm going to talk about will apply to both DSLR cameras, if you're shooting film, if you're Mm -hmm. shooting using those one-time use cameras, and also if you're using a cell phone. So pretty much this covers any kind of a camera and even a video camera for that fact. There are people who capture video. So let's talk about the five things that I think are most important to consider. Number one, it's always number one, is light. And you can't take a picture in the dark. Simple as that. You have to have some form of light. Now, the time of day can make a huge difference in how your photo is going to look. I will go scout out a location ahead of time. I'll look on a contour map. I'll look on a chart just to see when the best time of day might be to make an image of a particular landmark or a scene or whatever it is I'm going to go and shoot. Lighthouses is a good example. Most all face east on the east coast. Mm -hmm. So it would be natural to take a picture of them in the morning because you have the morning light that strikes the lighthouses and lights them up and they look beautiful at that time of day. So that's one consideration. I've gone so far as to go out and scout out a location ahead of time just to see what the light looks like in the morning. And if it doesn't look good, then I'll say, okay, maybe that's an afternoon or an evening shot. So that's the number one thing. It's all about the light. And if you don't get the best light, then your pictures could suffer. You might argue, well, we can do stuff in post-processing to make it look better and all this. But, you know, if you can just go out there and get that shot at the best light, that's going to make it look, uh, it's going to be easier and it's going to make it look really the best. Yeah. So to me, that's number one. Could I interject something here or ask you yeah. a question? Yeah. Uh, talking about finding the best light at a certain location. There's a tool I've used called the Photographer's Ephemeris, and I'm sure you're familiar mm-hmm. with that. Is something is that something you might recommend for people to check out? Yeah, that's a free app for a, a computer. And it's a paid app if you use it on your cell phone, I understand. That can be really helpful for finding the best time to include uh, a sunrise, sunset, moonrise, moonset in a picture. Uh, 
And that does pretty well. There's another app that I also highly recommend, and it's called Photo Pills. An interesting mm. name, Photo Pills. That you pay for, and it's worth every dollar. It's about a $10, and it's for both uh, the iOS and for the Android operating system. Mm-hmm. And that does pretty much the same thing, but it gives you one bonus, which I think is incredible. Uh, actually, two things. Number one, you can figure out where the Milky Way is going to be. But secondly, it will overlay the constellations or the star or the moon uh, or the uh, the sun and the Milky Way over the camera in your phone. Hmm. So if you were to go and open the app up and go to the augmented reality, you'll see your camera comes on and you get that live view. So wherever you point the camera, let's say you're pointing it at a lighthouse, you can then move the timeline ahead and see exactly where the sun's going to rise or the moon's going to rise on any given day of the year. And that will tell you exactly where to be, when to be at that location and to make that shot. So that's a, it's a great little app. And I love how it, like I say, how it overlays over the camera feed in the live view in your, in your phone. And it's pretty accurate. And you can also plan shots like you can with photo ephemeris as well. But that's one to look at if you have the opportunity. Uh, I think it's worth, uh, I think it's 10 bucks. It's a, it's a pretty yeah. good app. I just, uh, as we speak, I just uh, searched on my uh, on the app store on my iPhone and I see it uh, 9.99 photo pills, one word. Yeah. Uh, just like it sounds, P-H-O-T-O-P-I-L-L-S. And Shoot, it occasionally goes on sale, usually around you know Cyber Monday. And I don't know if they'll do anything for Christmas or not, but but it's uh, even at $10, it's worth it. And they're always updating it too. And the updates have so far all been free. Okay, back to the five factors. Number two is composition. I always say it's good to fill the frame. And the reason I say that is if you've got an older camera and maybe it's uh, less megapixels than some of these megapixel cameras that are out there today, I mean, Canon's got a 50 megapixel. Uh, my Samsung phone actually has 52 megapixels and they've got one that's got 104, which is great. Don't get me wrong. I think having more megapixels is there's lots of advantages for that. But if you're only dealing with something that's got smaller, uh, some smaller number of megapixels, you want to try and fill the frame as best as you can. And that might involve having to add a zoom lens. If you've got a DSLR camera or use optical zoom, digital zoom isn't usually the best. It's better to actually do that in post-processing. With a phone, however, uh, some of the newer phones actually have more than one camera built in with different Mm -hmm. lenses. And some give you a telephoto. So it's a matter of choosing the proper focal length to try and fill the frame the best you can. And the one thing I often tell people with composition, you know, it's really, it's a personal choice, but if you can think of a tic-tac-toe grid and where the lines intersect, there's four points. Those are what we call crash points. If you can put something that's interesting in your composition on one of those crash points, you're probably going to do well to have a nicely composed image. Some people know composition automatically. Others have to learn it. If you 
are in that second category, what I'd recommend is go look at pictures that you like a whole lot and try and emulate that composition. Mm -hmm. That uh, will help quite a bit. Now, you can turn the camera into a portrait mode to make a vertical and still go with that tic-tac-toe grid scenario. And so what I tell a lot of people to do is don't center the image. If the sky is more interesting than the foreground, tilt up. If the foreground is more interesting than the sky, tilt down and put that subject, again, thinking of a lighthouse, on one of those crash points, if at all possible. Now, there's lots of reams of information about composition and I'm not going to go into a whole lot here because it's really something that's worth looking at and it doesn't really relate to radio so well, but, but hopefully we all know what a tic-tac-toe grid looks like. And I think that's probably the simplest uh, way to get started. You just don't want to put the horizon through the middle of the frame. Right. You want to have it either lined up with the bottom line or the top line of the tic-tac-toe grid. And in a lot of cell phones, you have the ability to enable the grid so that when you're doing that live view, you actually see the grid overlaid over the image. And that helps as a guide to steer you where to point the phone or point the camera to make the shot. People have probably heard of the rule of thirds, which was something that was kind of drummed into me when I majored in filmmaking uh, back in mm-hmm. Emerson College. But uh And that can certainly go along with the tic-tac-toe grid you're talking about, right? Yeah, that's that's really what the rule of thirds is in that respect. And it's pretty simple to do. And with digital cameras, you know, the beauty of this today, Jeremy, you can take five or 10 pictures and then come back and take the one that you like the most and then delete the rest. It's not like the film days where you'd only get, what, 24 or 36 pictures in a roll of film and you had to you, know, you had uh, limited uh, opportunities like that with uh, digital the beauty of that is you get you know thousand images on a memory card so you you get to experiment with that a little bit out in the field and then when you come back take the best one and uh, use that go with that so back to the five factors number three i'd say it's all about the story to me a picture tells a story And when I look at an image, I'm looking at this from the perspective of, okay, what's the visual story that the maker, the photographer is trying to tell me? Now, you want to include elements that will help visually tell that story in the frame. I do some judging for uh, competitions at this one county fair. And if there's one comment that I would make to a lot of people is how many of the images would score higher if they simply did some cropping. You might have a picture that has some elements coming in from the side or from the bottom or from the top that have nothing to do with the main subject in the the photo. Mm -hmm. Crop that out. Maybe it's a matter of stepping a couple of steps to the left or to the right or tilting up or down, zooming in. Just look around the edges and see if there's anything around the edges that don't help tell the story that you're trying to tell visually. If you don't have the proper lens with you to be able to do that out in the field, just know that you can literally take scissors 
and cut the uh, frame to include just that part that you're trying to visually storytell to your audience. And so to me, photos tell a story. And, and you know, the other consideration here, some of the strongest photos you can describe in just one word, or maybe just two words. If you have to write a book to describe the photo, it's probably not a really strong photo. Mm -hmm. You know, you've often heard it said a picture's worth a thousand words, but my corollary to that is if it takes a thousand words to describe the picture, it's probably not a really good picture. <laughs> so I think the, it, when you compose a shot, when you uh, print that, when you show it to somebody, try and narrow it down to one, two, maybe three words at the most to describe what it is you're trying to show the, the viewer. And the less words, probably the stronger that story is, the stronger the image is. And if you put it into a competition, you'll probably do pretty well in that competition. Number four, timing. You know, luck favors those who are prepared. I've had the fortune of taking pictures of some unusual things. I got a picture of a thresher shark jumping up out of the water and I got it completely out of the water. Not once, but I got it twice. Now, I knew my camera. I knew its abilities. I had the proper lens on. And when that instant happened, I got the shot. My favorite thing to shoot is lightning. And so I've got dozens of bolts of lightning pictures. And oftentimes people say, well, how is it you can get that? Well, it's just a matter of timing. And it's a matter of knowing where to look for the storm uh, there's just some knowledge that has to go into this and some safety naturally, if you're going to be going out to shoot lightning. Lightning is not something I'd recommend shooting with a cell phone unless you're shooting video. And then you can go back and grab a frame of video and there's your bolt of lightning. So that's one way you could do it with a cell phone. Yeah. But the other thing about timing, and we kind of talked about this earlier, and that is, it goes back to the light, the time of day when you go scout a location ahead of time, find out when's the best time to go and take a picture. You might be wanting to take a picture in a place that has a number of people. Think of a train station or some, uh, you know, some place. If you go at the right time, you'll probably find that there's less people milling around and you might be able to get a picture of this place that would normally have thousands of people in the shot. Uh, you might find it empty. Uh, I know, for instance, in uh, Monument Square in Portland, uh, there's people going through there all the time. But if you get there at the right time of day, you can often take pictures around the, the monuments and around the buildings and not include any people. In fact, you can even get some shots and not include any traffic. So it's all about timing in that respect. And if you're going to be going to some national, national monument or some national park, uh, it's worth, again, doing your homework just to find out when's the best time to go when you're maybe are able to take a picture that doesn't include a bunch of people in the shot. So uh, unless you're looking for that shot, and then once again, it's about timing. When can you go where you'll find a number of people in the shot? So timing is certainly one of those five factors that help make a great photo. Sure. I always uh, 
say that a large percentage of uh, good photography is just putting yourself in the right place at the right time. And it's, it take, takes work. It doesn't, uh, it can happen by accident, but uh, it's better <laughs> if you work to be in the right place at the right time. Well, that's why I say luck favors those who are prepared. And if you go do your homework, yeah. well, you can, you can sometimes be lucky in that respect. Mm-hmm. The, the fifth one doesn't have a whole lot to do with taking the pictures out in the field, but it's all about image processing. What do you do with the picture after you've taken the, the, the photo? I think that some people are happy to just look at it on their screen. Some people would like to make a print. Uh, there's uh, lots of different ways to distribute a photo. Uh, social media is certainly a favorite of mine where I'll uh, share images through uh, Facebook. Uh, I create these slideshows and put them to music and you can see images in that fashion, which is always nice. The digital picture frames, which have uh, continued to be uh, popular. Uh, some of them even have uh, email addresses now. So it's kind of a cool gift to give somebody, by the way, because you can send pictures to that uh, digital picture frame for your friend or family member to, to see new images every day if, you, if you're so inclined. So how you process those images, though, uh, can make or break what your image looks like. The number one thing that I am always telling people to do is to capture in raw mode and then process later. When you're out in the field taking a picture, you don't always have the luxury of the time to go and set up your camera to make your best shot. You will certainly get it in the ballpark. I mean, you'll, you'll set the shutter speed and, and, and certain things, certain factors, uh, white balance and all that to, to get the best shots, but to fine tune them and to tweak them to, to finish it, really, you really want to capture in raw mode, and then you can process that later. There's lots of image editing software apps out there that you can run on a cell phone and, of course, on your computer. One of my favorites, of course, is Photoshop, and you can do a lot with that. One that's free for your cell phones is called Lightroom. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's got a camera mode in it, so you can capture in RAW using uh, Lightroom in most cell phones, I might add. Android phones, most of them have the ability to capture RAW automatically. If you've got an iOS uh, operating system, Sometimes uh, Apple has taken that ability away, but Lightroom puts it back in. And so you can capture in raw mode. Now you might ask, what's the difference between raw mode and and like a JPEG file? The way I like to describe a raw file or to describe the difference is imagine you're going to go to the grocery store today to go buy some ingredients to cook a recipe. Do you cook, Jeremy? Jeremy? Uh, I'm lucky that I have somebody, uh, I happen to be married to who, who loves, loves to cook. So I'm lazy that way. Oh, okay. Well then, then maybe your wife would better relate to this, but I'm hoping some of your listeners cook. And so let's, you're going to follow, you're going to follow a recipe. And so you've got a list of ingredients that you need. So you go down to the grocery store and you buy these ingredients. You come home with maybe a bag or two bags of groceries. So you start cooking then you suddenly realize, darn, I forgot an ingredient. You're missing something, okay? Are you with me so far? Is this making sense? Absolutely. (laughs) So what do you do? So you go back to the store to buy that ingredient. 
problem is the store is closed. So you got to punt. You got to make do with what you've got. Right. Well, that's like a JPEG file. See, when you're capturing in JPEG, you have to have everything, the exposure, the white balance, uh, everything has to be right, right up front. Now, if you're capturing whales jumping out of the ocean, or if you're capturing birds flying overhead, you might not have the time to go and make those fine adjustments to get things perfect. So what if you could go to that same grocery store, but bring home the entire contents of the grocery store? Pick an aisle, the canned goods, the deli, the dairy, um, the, uh, the, the frozen foods, the, everything. If you could bring everything home, that's a raw file. And that's why most cameras and most, most DSLR cameras and most cell phones these days have the ability to capture in raw mode. So that after you've taken the picture, there are about 48 different parameters that you can go back in and adjust if needed to get your best shot. Have you ever taken a picture that was too bright or too dark? Yeah, I would say a few thousand I, I, times, maybe. Yeah, I, I, bet, I bet your listeners have done that a couple of times. If you capture in raw mode, you can go back and change the exposure mm -hmm. by plus or minus five f-stops. Yep. And you see, you get the whole grocery store there. So you can go reshop and go, go shopping again. Right. Uh, the other great function of raw is you can crop in on a picture, which is like zooming, and get much better results than if you crop in on a JPEG. Yep. So raw mode is a great thing to consider capturing in. And then you can process that through several apps. Lightroom, like I say, is one of my favorite ones for the phone, Photoshop for the uh, computer. There is an app called Snapseed that gives you a lot of processing capabilities for your phone. And there's a lot of other processing uh, apps that are out there that can take your picture and allow you to take your picture to the next level to make it really great. And that could be the image that you're going to want to post to social media. And that's the one that people are going to remember. So it's worth putting that little extra effort in. If you're going to be showing off your work, show off your best work. Let me ask you, Mike, what are some of the, the most common mistakes you see people making when they take pictures? A couple of things that I see in the photo excursions and photo walks and tours that I've done. On the physical side, people not charging their batteries and not carrying extra fully charged batteries. Today, these cell phones and cameras, digital cameras, they won't work without power. It's not like the film cameras. It's not like those disposable one-time use cameras. Um, you really need to have batteries that are fully charged. And I always recommend have at least one spare battery. When I go out, I usually bring with me maybe a half dozen batteries and I make sure they're all full because you just never know. If you're taking pictures in the winter time when the uh, air temperature is cold, like it is now when we're recording this, your battery life can go down to as much as half. So if you think that you can get uh, two or three hours on a battery, well, you might be lucky to get maybe an hour to an hour and a half. Right. So uh, extra batteries are a must. 
uh, if you're going to be going out and, and taking pictures. The other thing I find a lot of times is people not using the right tripod. Now, what do I mean by that? When you buy a tripod, there's two parts to it. You've got the sticks, which are the legs, and then you've got the head to which your camera mounts. Now, if you're going to spend a thousand or more dollars on a camera, you don't want to go and buy a $20 tripod and put your, your camera on that. You want the best tripod you can, you can get your hands on and a tripod that fits you. Now, when you buy pants, you probably buy pants that are a certain size. They've got a certain inseam and they get a certain waist size. Well, you buy a tripod almost the same way. What you want is with your camera mounted on the head of the tripod and with the legs fully extended, you should be able to be flat footed and be able to look through the viewfinder without having to be on your tiptoes and without having to bend over. Now, if you're bending over, then your tripod's too low. If you're up on your tiptoes, it's too high. Mm -hmm. Taller people have the disadvantage that you're going to spend more for the tripod because the taller tripods cost more. The tripods that are lower cost less because there's less metal naturally. And so once you get a tripod that fits you, and I always tell people, go try on a tripod, get one that fits you, that's a respectable brand tripod. It doesn't have to be the carbon fiber or mag fiber. Those are really nice. They're about five pounds less in weight, which might be good if you're going to be hiking or traveling. The aluminum tripods are, are excellent as well. But I was up on top of Cadillac Mountain one time, and I used this in my demonstration. This guy had one of these $20, $15, $20 tripods, and he had his DSLR camera on top. And I remember I took a picture of him. He had the center column cranked all the way out, mm -hmm. you know, just to get it up. And even at that, it was up to maybe his chest. And I, I took this picture of him, <laughs> and I said, okay, there's an undersized tripod. And it was pretty flimsy. Not more than two minutes later, a gust of wind came and the whole thing went flying down and his camera went right down on the rocks. Ugh. And I got a picture of him picking his camera back up. And as all I could think of was like, okay, there's why you don't buy a cheap tripod. Yeah. Buy, buy your, your best tripod first. Okay. Don't go out and say, well, I'll upgrade this later. No. I've seen some people with these tripods and they say, what do you think of this tripod? And I'm pretty candid. It's like, you know, bring it to the aluminum recycler. You, know, you, you might get five bucks if you're lucky, uh, but don't, don't use a cheap tripod if you've got a, a high-end camera. So that's, think of it as insurance for your camera. I mean, you want to be able to put that up there, know that it's on a safe uh, platform and stable. And if your tripod is easy to use, such that you're not having to futz with it to get it to your height. I've seen some people get tripods that are too big for them. Well, then they're always adjusting the legs to try and get it right to the right level for them. You're not going to use your tripod if you're having to futz with it all that much. So, right. so you get one that fits you. So the legs go out full. You don't bring up the center column. The camera goes on. I always have a quick release head. And I like the head that's a pistol grip one. I can have my tripod from fully collapsed to fully up with the camera on it in about 30 to 35 seconds. And then I can have the whole thing put away again in about as much time. So getting a good tripod can make a big difference. 
are there any uh, travel tripods that are worth getting that, that take up less space and maybe weigh less? Yes and no. I'm of the opinion that I've got this mag fiber uh, tripod that is, it costs a little more. It's about $300 just for the sticks, mm -hmm. but it's about five pounds less than an aluminum tripod. And so I carry that and I put it in my check luggage and that travels just fine. A lot of the airlines don't like you to bring, carry a tripod on anymore. At one point you used to be able to do that, but now you, you don't want to do that. So you get to throw it in check luggage. Yeah. So I, to, to me, the best choice there would be just to buy the mag fiber one. If you're looking for a small one, however, there are some that I've seen that some people have liked. Again, it's a compromise and I would just be very careful using them. Some of them have got three and four stages for the legs that expand. And True. just know that every one of those stages is prone to break. And if you have the type that twist, if you just get one grain of sand in there, the leg won't lock. So I like the ones that's got levers because mine's got that. Mine's been immersed in water and in salt water more than once. And I've used it on beaches and I've used it in very dusty areas. I've carried it all over and I've never had a problem with it. I just hose it down to clean it, quite frankly. But I think that, again, buy your, buy your last tripod first and take that into consideration when you buy a tripod. And I think you'll be able to travel with it just fine. Okay, and getting back to the common mistakes people make uh, in general. I think the third thing that people do, and again, this falls under physically, is not putting their subject in the proper light. I'll see sometimes people will say, oh, go stand over there, I'll take your picture. But their face is completely in the shade. That's a simple one to fix. Just simply tell the person to turn around or look in a different direction. Yeah. You have to find the light. And we can talk about that a little bit later. But those are physically some things that can be done to instantly improve your photos. Now, for camera settings, I think the three things that I see people doing, number one, they'll shoot in full auto mode. That's that green mode. And to me, it's almost an embarrassment to see a $3,000, $4,000 camera to have an auto mode. It would be kind of like putting a governor on a high-end sports car to make it not go more than 25 miles an hour. You really need to come out of that full auto mode and start using at least program mode or aperture priority or shutter priority or even going to full manual. Those are all modes that are absolutely worth learning. The other thing I find people that they not do is to set white balance. White balance is one of those where people's eyes will glaze over when I say that I'm going to talk about white balance, but it's really embarrassingly simple. And here's what it's all about. Light has color. If you don't believe me, if you go down the road any night and look at oncoming headlights, you'll notice some look blue, some look yellowish or amber color, if you will. And the one thing they all have in common is they're all focused in the same direction. They're all the same brightness. It's just that they're different color temperatures. So the sunlight has a whole different color light than an incandescent or tungsten bulb. 
And so if you simply tell the camera what light you're shooting under, it will do the rest for you and it'll do it very well. And you get to set white balance, even in a digital, uh, obviously in a digital camera, but your cell phone also has that ability. And if you have an Apple phone, this is where you really wanna download Adobe Lightroom and use the camera mode in that because that opens up your ability to set the white balance that Apple took away from you. And again, white balance is embarrassingly simple. They put a little sun and you'd use that for daylight. They put a little light bulb. You'd use that for when you're shooting indoors. They put a little storm cloud. That's for cloudy day. See where I'm going with this? It's that simple. They put a little fluorescent bulb in there. Well, if you're ever taking a picture in a building that has fluorescent lights, or if you've got those compact fluorescent lights, you put it in that mode. And what the camera will know to do is to make all the colors pop into the proper place. Mm -hmm. You see what happens when you shoot in auto mode, and I often tell people in my classes, they misspell that word. It should be A-W-F-U-L. Uh, when you're shooting in awful mode, let's call it what it is, you're telling the camera to take whatever the dominant color is in the scene and delete it by adding an equal amount of the opposite color. So let's say you're at the ocean, blue sky, blue water. What's the opposite of blue? Do I hear somebody saying yellow? <laughs> so if you're going to take a picture of a lighthouse at the ocean or a sailboat sailing by, if you're in awful mode, again, let's call it what it is, that lighthouse or that sailboat's going to have often a orange or yellow cast to it. It's because the camera is trying to delete that blue and add the opposite color. Here's one more example. Let's say you go to a golf course, green grass, green trees. What's the opposite of green? I'll help you out. It's magenta, <laughs> okay. purple. So if you were to take a picture of your golfing buddies on the green grass with green trees in the background, um, they're going to look all purple. So if you're shooting in auto mode. So again, simply by setting the white balance, and again, it's embarrassingly simple, with uh, some of these cameras, you just basically go in and you say, okay, today I'm going to be shooting outdoors. So you check the little sun because it's a sunny day. And you do that and you shoot that until you go indoors. And then you just go in, you change it to whatever the kind of light is that's indoors. So setting white balance will make a huge difference in your, in your shots. And it'll make the colors pop and they'll just look a whole lot better. Now, the third thing I see some people do is they'll have these high-end cameras, but they're not shooting in RAW mode. Now, I know we've already talked about the difference between RAW and JPEG, but if you have that ability, why not use it? Yeah. And it will take more space on your memory card. Instead of getting a thousand images on your card, you might only get 400, but just remember the days when the most you could get was 36. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. So I'll take 400 any day. Yeah, so those sure. are just some things that uh, I find people um, are mistakes that people make. And just by changing some of those uh, bad behaviors, if you will, uh, inherently, they'll be starting to make better pictures. And, you know, one point I like to say, Jeremy, about making better pictures, when you bring your, when you send your uh, files in to make prints at a, print place like a Walmart or Walgreens or someplace like that. Yep. If your prints look better, 
they won't charge you anymore. It's all the same price. It's not like they'll look at this picture and say, ah, that's pretty bad, nine cents. Ah, here, this one looks really good. That'll be 20 cents. It's not how it works. So why not make all your images the best? So we talked a lot about uh, general tips, you know, for making any kind of photos better. Mm -hmm. All good tips. But is there anything in particular uh, you could say about photographing lighthouses? I knew this was going to come up. Of course, in a lighthouse podcast, right? <laughs> um, well, you know, it's all about finding the light again and, and the timing aspect. Uh, lighthouses in Maine face east. So if you can, try and get in a boat and go out and, and uh, get a picture in the morning. Now, if you don't have the ability to, to, uh, to have that control, and let's say it's high noon and you're taking a picture of a lighthouse, you might want to consider a filter. And even on a cell phone, you can use a polarizer. You just have to hold it up. And what you do is you rotate that polarizer. At noon, the polarized light will be all around the horizon. So if you're having to make a picture at perhaps the less than ideal light, because I really am a fan of early morning light and late afternoon, early evening light, if you put a polarizer on, that can make uh, the sky go bluer and can bring out clouds if there are some and can make the picture pop, if you will. Now, one thing that is important for me, most lighthouses, as you know, have a white tower. And the one thing I see sometimes will happen is the white tower will be overexposed. Again, here's where you really want to capture in raw mode, because you can go in and tame that and make the, the bright white of the tower, uh, you can darken just that and just that alone and get some detail back in because a lot of these towers, you could probably speak better than I can about what they're made out of. I mean, I'm guessing there's probably some cement or concrete, uh, bricks, uh, things that have texture to them. Yeah. And I wanna see the texture on the tower. I just don't want it to be paper white or just, pure white. And so you need to make sure you get the exposure set properly so that you get the, uh, that uh, modeling, if you will, the detail on the tower of the lighthouse. Composition, again, if you're telling a story, what's that story you're trying to tell? Is this lighthouse in a place that's uh, got a bunch of dangerous rocks that are uh, dangerous and this is a real aid to navigation? Um, is this lighthouse in a location that uh, is maybe a standalone on an island out in the ocean? Um, you know, what story do you want to tell? And that's how you fill the frame with the story that you're trying to tell the viewer, the person who's going to be looking at the image. So, and when I can, sometimes it's nice to include some topical feature like a fishing boat or a ferry going by the lighthouse. That's a great shot to get in Portland of bug light, for instance. That's the uh, Inner Harbor breakwater light. Yep. Casco Bay Line ferries go by just about every other hour. Schooners, and, uh, schooners and go by there. Schooners are a great one. Um, Coast Guard vessels. I mean, it's, it's always nice to get something else with the lighthouse if you can get that. And of course, I like to get the lighthouse turned on because then the lighthouse is doing its job. I'm, I'm one of those people you'll see uh, lying on the ground in some places trying to get flowers in the foreground and that sort of thing. I always 
That's nice. That That's always a nice, uh, nice feature to add some color. Summing it up, if there are just two things uh, you might tell people, uh, you know, if they're not going to remember anything you said, except for these, these <laughs> couple of things to make their shots, let's say 50% better, uh, what would you tell them? You know, you really, it's all about light. You need to find the light. What I'll do is I'll use my hands to look for the light. If you put your hands together like you're about to clap, look at one hand and look at the other hand and probably you'll find one hand is brighter than the other. Even if you're just sitting there at home when you're listening to this podcast or if you're listening to this on the road, put your hands up like you're going to clap. And you'll notice one hand probably looks brighter because there's better light on it. That's the hand that you want to be pointing the camera toward. And so if you simply put your subject in the light, you're going to get a better image. And so I use my hand all the time just to find the light because sometimes it's it's just easier to do that. The second thing is, is to consider composition. Don't center your image on the horizon. If you're taking a picture uh, of a portrait of somebody, don't put them in the center of the frame. Tilt down. It's okay if the top of their head might touch the top of the frame. I almost prefer to see that than to have it bullseyed because I'm so wanting to take a pair of scissors and cut off the top third of the picture, you know, just to get rid of all that space. Yeah. If, if you're uh, doing uh, a shot of uh, that includes a horizon, make sure the horizon is level and don't just put it in the dead center, put it on one of those tic-tac-toe lines, either the upper third or the lower third line. So it just comes back to the composition again, just don't put it in the center. If you can just do one of those two things between the light and the composition, your pictures will be probably 50% better. If you do both, that can be a big help to, uh, to get you uh, to the point where you're making great photos. So before we wrap things up here, I just want to uh, mention your, your website again. Tell me again what your website is and what people can find on there. Sure. It's uh, phototourismbymike.com. I know it's a mouthful, but it's all together, phototourismbymike. And at that site, you can click on the list of photo events. And I hope to be populating that in the new year with photo tours, uh, some of which will be lighthouse tours and uh, other photo walks and even some photo events that I do with adult education, some of which it will be via Zoom. So wherever you are in the country, you'll be able to join. I also do have a tab there for education and you can click on that and see a number of articles that I've published. Uh, and you can also see some uh, appearances that I've had on the Weather Channel talking about wintertime photography and nature photography. Mm -hmm. And there's also a, a tab there that talks about photo services that I do. And there's, if you like some of my photography, you can even click through and, and purchase it through uh, Fine Art America. And you have a Facebook page, right? And what kind of uh, information might be on there? I do. You know, when we were talking about the image processing part earlier, I mentioned Photoshop. And if you'd like to learn Photoshop and get up to speed, have I a deal for you? <laughs> if you'd simply go to Facebook and type in and search for Friday Night Photoshop. Now, that is a group that I started 
literally 15 years ago. And I've been doing this as an Adobe user group for that long. And I teach Photoshop. It's all via Zoom now. So no matter where you are, you can join. And if you've not been to my classes on Facebook, you can go and click on on demand and watch any of the sessions that I've done in the past. And there I've got one all about how to use Adobe Camera Raw, for instance, and how to process a photo in that. And in fact, the photo that I demonstrate on happens to be Burnt Island Light. So you can see the before, what the JPEG looked like, and then the after, having sourced from the uh, from the raw file. Mm-hmm. And that's all a free resource. Now, I welcome you to join me on that Facebook page and friend me there. But I've got a simple rule, and this is something I think everybody who uses Facebook should do. And that is, send me a message to simply say how you heard of me and heard about the program. And what that does is it makes it a legitimate friend request. If I don't see that, then I just count it as spam and I just delete it. I think anytime you friend anybody on Facebook, you should always send a note just to make it legitimate. And that way, the person whom you're trying to friend knows that this is a real request and not just some spammer or some robot or whatever uh, wanting to uh, get in there and cause issues. So I welcome anybody to come on board and join my program. And did I mention that's all free of charge? It's a Facebook group, Group. right? It's Friday night Photoshop. That's it. And uh, so if people want to join the group, uh, they should send you a message also just saying uh, how they, how they found out about you. Yep. And I'll be happy to, uh, to welcome them in and then they can instantly use the resources to, uh, to learn uh, a lot about Photoshop. And I do, uh, do start from a real basic level and I take you up to an intermediate level and I'm going to be looking to get back into doing these on a regular Friday night, probably sometime in uh, mid-February at this point. I'm taking a little winter hiatus right at the moment, but uh, I usually run these typically from November until about May and I am available uh, through that form if somebody might have a question or would like to reach out to me. Anything else in the works that you want to mention? The uh, photo cruises that I can talk about at this point are uh, in Booth Bay Harbor. One's going to be at the end of June, and that's for Windjammer Days. So long as COVID doesn't uh, rear its ugly head again, we'll hopefully be able to uh, do that. And then in September, on or around the Saturday of the main open lighthouse day, which we'll see again if that's going to happen in 2022, we do a morning cruise to go see the four prominent lighthouses around the Booth Bay Harbor area. And we see them at daybreak. So that's an early morning call for that one. The boat leaves the uh, Pier 8 at 8 a.m. And I will have all the details about that and a click through to be able to uh, buy tickets for that. It's aboard the Balmy Days Cruises out of Booth Bay Harbor. Yeah. Uh, I believe you can actually buy tickets now for that. This will, I think, be the fifth year that we've done that one. Mm-hmm. And that's always a, a good time because the, uh, the captain uh, of that vessel, Bill Campbell, does such a wonderful job of aligning the boat. This is a photography cruise. He'll align the boat to get the very best look angles of those lighthouses in that area. So it's not like a harbor cruise where you go steaming by the lighthouse and you have to be real quick about 
getting the shot. No, we'll actually go to that lighthouse and we hang there for a good five minutes or so before moving on to the next one. And then even at that, we make sure everybody's comfortable that they've got the shot that they want before we move on. Mm-hmm. So that's the difference between a harbor cruise and a photography cruise. Sure. And I always, uh, I always say, hey, why not come on board the photography cruise? You'll see the same thing, but you'll just see it under better light. And you'll see it uh, under uh, typically uh, better conditions so that you can make that postcard quality image to take home and, and share and make a print of. Well, Mike, it's always a pleasure uh, talking with you for the podcast and always a pleasure doing uh, events with you and so forth. We've done a, a number of them over the years. And uh, again, we're, t- we're speaking, I think I said it before, we're speaking a couple of days before Christmas. So I just want to wish you all the best uh, for the holidays and for the new year. And obviously we'll, we'll be in touch and I'm sure we'll see each other during the 2022 season. Uh, so thank you so much as always, Mike. Well, thank you again for having me, uh, Jeremy. And I look forward to uh, the next year, hopefully uh, having some more photography cruises and seeing you aboard some. Again, you can learn more about Mike Leonard's photography and his events at phototourismbymike.com. And to learn more about Mike's Photoshop Users Workshop, search for Friday Night Photoshop on Facebook. The group meets via Zoom, so you can take part from anywhere. It's always a pleasure talking with Mike. We'll definitely be having him back on the podcast. For several years, he and I worked together on lighthouse cruises out of Bar Harbor, Maine. I think, have you done any of those, Michelle? Um, I did. I did last summer. My friend Heather and I went up there and we did, I think it was like a five lighthouse cruise. Uh, yeah, they do that as a regular cruise, Bar Harbor Whale Watch, but yeah. uh, Mike and I took part in longer, like all day lighthouse cruises they were doing for a number of years. But with uh, the pandemic and everything, those have been interrupted. So <coughs> unsure if they're going to resume or not. I hope they do because they're uh, a lot of fun. And it was yeah. great working with uh, with Mike, with uh, Chris Mills, the Canadian lighthouse keeper and author was involved yep. in some of those. And our friend uh, Bob Trapani uh, helped narrate those as well. So hopefully those will resume. Thanks to all the members, volunteers and staff of the U.S. Lighthouse Society at Point No Point Light Station in Washington and around the world. Check out uslhs.org to learn more about the Passport Program, the Research Catalog, domestic and international tours, and everything else the Society offers. If you listen to us on a platform that lets you post reviews, please rate and review us. If you have ideas for the podcast, you can always write to me at jeremy at uslhs.org. Martin Luther King Jr. Day is on January 17th this year. He once said, quote, you don't have to see the whole staircase just take the first step, end quote. That could be applied to climbing lighthouses. I think. Absolutely. I think yeah, I don't think it's what he had in mind, though, but it applies no. to everything, really. Yeah. I want to wish a happy new year to all our faithful listeners and to all our new ones. Thank you all so much for listening and keep a good light. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. I'm gonna let it shine This little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine This little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine
Let's